Greetings and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Robert Cathern. My guest today is Emily Verdine. She's an artist working at the rather unusual intersection of psychedelic visionary art and Christian mysticism. We talk about art school, dreams, psychedelics, and whether or not witch-like tendencies inevitably lead one to witchcraft. Enjoy. So Emily, tell me about where you come from. Let's see. I went to I went to school for illustration. So that's, you know, I knew I wanted to go to art school. I wanted to be an artist just because I didn't want to do anything else. Um, so I, I hopped into art school and they stuck me in the illustration department because what I focused on was narratives, basically. It was it was always about the narrative. And I didn't know that, you know, they I guess if you're more um, expressive, maybe they would have stuck me in fine arts or something like that. But they put me in illustration because it's all about narrative. And let's see, how did that go? I kind of learned, I mean, I kind of learned how to do, you know, you do book covers, they teach you how to do things for magazines, or and now it's like websites and stuff like that. But it wasn't really, um, I couldn't ever see myself doing that, really. And when I got out of school, I didn't really want to be an artist anymore. I was just so burnt out from kind of the, the process of learning, you know, how to do that, submit your stuff to art directors, you know, try to get into a, something commercial, something like that. Um, so I just took a break and what started happening in the art I started making was more, uh, I guess what you would call psychedelic or visionary style art. And that was just because of the experiences I was trying to process and deal with. And it had nothing to do with trying to get them put anywhere. Right. I was just making them to make them. And that was satisfying. So after a few years of kind of practicing that, I mean, I'm starting to figure out maybe what I've been doing, but it's kind of been a figure it out as I go kind of thing. And I guess, I guess that's where I'm coming from. How much did that uh, creative impulse, like how early do you remember that starting? Oh, forever. I was always the kid in the art class who, you know, the, the art teacher was like, okay, I'm putting this one in the hallway. And I remember being like, cool. All right. Like it was always, I mean, I was writing poems and I was drawing all the time and it was just kind of what I did. I, I like to play alone. I was one of the kids always playing alone. I could imagine, you know, I didn't, uh, well, there weren't any kids around. So I had a big imagination. You know what I mean? I so was a small family. Always, I was the first kid. I was just the first kid born in the family. Um, and it just, there just weren't, there wasn't anybody else around, I guess. I don't know how else to say it. Um, so I was always the oldest too. So I was like, if I wasn't, uh, playing alone, I was like shepherding the other kids around, you know what I mean? Cause they were all younger than me. So, but I was always making stuff. I was drawing and writing and I wrote little stories and that's just kind of the, the thing that I did, I guess. So it was always there, but you didn't ever think that that would be like a job or a thing to do right all kids draw they'll color and everything like that but when I got older it was just there just wasn't anything else interesting that was all all of my attention was stuck on that so were you encouraged to pursue that um I think my parents told me I should be an anesthesiologist or a doctor or uh something else horrible you know that I'm like I don't even know what that means you know and I mean they weren't discouraging but they were like is this what do you do with this you know which is fair question what do you do with an art degree? Not a lot, as it turns out, um, for most most of the time. So kind of encouraged, but more it was more like, oh, look at what, you know, look at what she did. That's cool, right? And 
I mean, no one else in my family is creative. So it was, they're very practical. So there's always kind of that, uh, maybe that like black sheep kind of thing, mm. you know? Yeah. Were you an indoor kid or an outdoor kid? An outdoor kid always. Yeah. 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 I like to play outside. I, I thought I was like, uh, like when I was little, I, I wanted to be like a, like a mountain man or a pioneer, like a, get in a covered wagon and go somewhere. I thought that would be cool. Um, being inside so boring. I mean, you know, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I grew up in Michigan. There's, there's woods, there's, you know, in the winter, there's snow, there's always something to do outside. So I was always outside. If I was inside, I was like drawing or making up, you know, big stories with myself. Did you yeah. like read Little House on the Prairie growing up? Oh yeah. Little House on the Prairie, um, you know, Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone, there's uh, Annie Oakley. I mean, it was all, that was, I was all about that. Nice. Have yeah. you ever listened to the, uh, the Mediator podcast? Who runs that one? Steve Renault. Oh yeah. He's very cool. I mean, that's who I wanted to be, but I was, you know, as a little girl, I'm like, that's, that looks cool. Right. And you know, you get a little older and go, okay, maybe I won't be a mountain man, but um, you know, I can still <laughs> go hiking and kayaking and, you know, camping and stuff like that. So you weren't one of the, one of the kids who thought that, or who wanted to be like a fairy living in the woods. You wanted to be like a rugged outdoors woman who conquered the wild. Yeah, that was my fantasy. That's what I wanted to be when I grew up. And it turns out there's no job for that. So I guess art school is the next best thing, I suppose. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, kind of. Well, that, okay. So as far as being encouraged to do something by your parents, what you actually want to do, what you're drawn towards. There seems to be a limit in most of the creative people I've talked to of the rational path towards getting to where you need to be. And I'm curious as to where like the rational broke down with you when you started pursuing what you really cared about, drawing, painting, doing creatively. Because like I've had the experience of like, well, my brain can't figure this out anymore. I have to go with my gut and I can sleep better if I do this which is never defensible to someone who has a law degree, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I, I started working in college at farms and uh, landscape nurseries because I like to be outside. And so naturally I'm, I'm like, I can't work in, I'm not going to go work in a shop. I did that. I worked in a restaurant. It was horrific. I was like, I will, I'll go work outside. It'd be dirty and sweaty and that's fine with me. Um, so when I was in college, I started working on a small family farm Then I moved to a landscape nursery. I actually learned a lot. I mean, it was great. I really enjoyed it. You know, like a, a, a guy who grows trees and flowers and shrubs for, for landscapers. So it's bulk. So it's a, it's a big, you know, it's very practical. It's very hands-on. And I really liked that. Uh, and when I got out of college, I, like I said, I was burnt out. So I was like, well, I have this job. I can just I'll just keep going with this for now and see where I land. You know, I needed, I need to make some money and um, see where I land after a few years or something like that. But I kind of just went with that for a while. Um, worked, man, how long was I there? A few years at least. Then I switched to another place that did something similar. Uh, it was like a wedding venue that had gardens and all that. So it was a little, little different. Didn't like that quite as much, but I got to do farmer's markets and, you know, I mean, you're still working outside. It's still, still good fun. Right. But eventually it became something where every day you're going and you're going, I can't even stand doing this, uh, odd job. 
because I'm so busy thinking about the other thing all the time, right? And then you go, okay, when I come home, I'm too tired to draw or paint. I have this limited amount of time on the weekend. I mean, eventually, how long has it been? Maybe one or two years I've been not doing that anymore. I just stopped and said, okay, if I'm really going to try to do this, I'm going to just do this. Otherwise it's never going to, nothing's going to happen, right? I mean, nothing might happen anyway, but I really have to try and stop half trying. So very impractical thing to do, you could say, but um, that's, that's, uh, that's what made sense. Yeah. It was like that gut thing. I mean, I, I knew that this wasn't, I couldn't just keep doing this forever. So tried to take the plunge a little bit. So the pain of not doing art was greater than the pain of uh not making money. Right. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Um yeah, it was it was just consuming. I mean, all the time. I mean, I go to work and you're doing manual labor kind of stuff. So you can plug your earbuds in and listen to podcasts. And I'm listening to you know, Peugeot, Jordan Peterson, uh, who else? Probably Paul Vanderclay at the time, that kind of stuff on loop and books, you know, audio books and whatever. And it's just like, this is what I'm thinking about all the time. And this is the only thing I care to think about. And then I get home and that's all I want to do. This is, this job is really cutting into my attention. I mean, I couldn't keep my attention on normal stuff. So, you know, after a while you just have to go, okay, I'm swimming against the current. Maybe I should like float. <laughs> So are you like lugging like mulch bags around and uh, transplanting stuff? And Yeah, trying to keep up with the boys. That was always the, the, you know, I was like the smallest one there and I'm trying to pick up all this heavy stuff and, you know, but it, I mean, it was really good. It was like, you're healthy and you get exercise and you're in the sun and it's like, it's good. It was a good gig. I like doing, it. I miss it, but um, you know, it's not going anywhere. It's not going the direction I want to go. Have so, you found a way to make up for that lack of um, like being outdoors and working and physical exercise? Not yet. Um, well, it's winter now, so it's a little hard to do that. But um, I mean, in the summertime, I just it's better to be outside, right? At least when you can. And there's plenty of places to go around here. But I've also been in the past few years, I've been back and forth between. So my husband's from Bulgaria. So I've been back and forth between here and Bulgaria for the past few years and that's really cut into my sort of rhythm that I had going. Um, so it's been a big change, not being outside, being inside a lot. Uh, it's, 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 uh, been a transition, but I feel like I've been in transition for a while. So I hope I can get back to that. I just feel better when I get to be outside a lot. You know, I mean, I think a lot of introverts are probably like that. Um, I'll, I'll get back to it, but not right now. I gotcha. <laughs> I have, I have trouble with the outdoors because I really don't like warm weather. Um, I prefer the fall and the winter uh, personally, but um, which is hilarious because my, my girlfriend loves warm weather. Um, and so we don't agree on that, unfortunately. But um, did you ever get any kind of inspiration? So if you're doing manual labor, you're outside all the time, but you're listening to Pajot and Peterson and Vanderclay, how much is that data you're downloading, changing your relationship to the art you're making. Because I love listening to Pajot personally. He's one of my favorite thinkers. And I find that when he talks about things structurally, 
I can apply those structures to things that aren't related to what he's talking about necessarily, like the specifics of what he's talking about. And that gives me a better understanding of what I might be working on. So it translates nicely. But I, if I listen to something um, that's topically connected to what I'm working on directly, I feel like it disrupts my connection to the material that I'm supposed to be putting out. So it's almost like I've got a beaker of, of material that I'm putting in. And if I put too much of one element in, whether it's, it's media um, that I'm consuming, it can completely change my energy relationship to the project. Um, so did, did that kind of, was that material making you want to do art more or was it contributing to your understanding of your own creative process? I think is my bigger question. I think it was contributing. I needed to understand what I was doing and that helped a lot. I mean, Peterson, I, I was just getting out of college when he kind of popped up. And so I was, it was a good point to need to hear, um, you know, how to basically order your life better. Right. I mean, I was in a lot of chaos at the time so that was very helpful and he's also I mean he talks about Jung and he incorporates a lot of Jung in that and uh in what he talks about and I was already reading Jung so um it was like a practical application of some of the ideas I was already messing with I don't know if it ch it, it must have changed what I was doing but it was helping me to articulate it better you know a lot of people say something like I heard Peterson or, or Peugeot and they just said something that I was already feeling, but they, they articulate it in a way that makes sense. And I, I needed to process that for a while. So that was helping me to just process it, you know, just let it sink in uh, for several years. I mean, that's what I was, I would say though, that you, that reading Jung changed my work more than perhaps the other things. Um, I mean, I carried the red book. I remember carrying the red book around in my backpack for a few years, like all the time. I had it with me all the time. I haven't read the red book yet. I don't know if I'm ready for it. Uh, what was your introduction to Jung? I was reading about the early church when I was in college. I was really fascinated by Christianity because I wasn't raised in the church and I didn't understand it. We kind of had this Christian upbringing, but it wasn't really rooted in anything. So when I got to college, I'm like, I don't get this at all. I started reading the history and stuff like that. And I came across, I think, probably something about the um, the Gnostic texts that had, you know, they're gaining a lot of interest. And probably that's how I got into it. I can't actually remember the first thing that I read, but I know it was some something that wasn't an introductory kind of book. It was way too over my head, but it just hooked me um, right away and really helped with the things that I was experiencing and the way of looking at art and symbols and I mean, dreams and fantasies and how that all played into the religious stuff. And it just, it just, I knew that there was stuff there that I needed to get to and I would just have to take time to understand it. So I was just digging, I was just digging around. <laughs> Did you have any formal religious training, like any classes that um, like any kind of old Testament, new Testament survey in, in your college years? Oh, you know what? My last year of college, I did have an older professor, which I liked because he's very structured, who had, he taught mythology and then Bible is literature and the classes were back to back. So six hours of this, of this guy talking about everything I was interested in. They didn't offer a lot of courses like that. It was a small art school. They don't really give you a lot of liberal arts education. They kind of pump you full of art classes and then the rest you're kind of left to your own devices. Um, so I would have enjoyed that, but I, I only got the chance to do that 
once, I think, but I was already deep in it by then. It was already, it, but on my own, you know, so I was just looking wherever I found things. So it wasn't a, a staple part of your childhood upbringing to be reading Bible stories and whatnot? I was encouraged to read the Bible, um, but we didn't go to church. There was some rift there with like people who go to church are probably hypocritical and we don't have to do that to be Christian. But that kind of just means you, like if you don't partake in the community life, you kind of don't really know what that means, you know, in a way. So it was um, I, I read the kids Bible a lot. You know, the stories are great. So what kid doesn't like reading about, you know, like Jonah and the whale or what, you know, all that stuff is like those are all good stories. So or, or it was around. Times. Yeah, veggie tales. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not as hot on veggie tales. So you had you had the background. You had you had like that sort of baseline foundation of a Christian worldview without being directly actively engaged in the church itself. Yes. So you it doesn't seem like you had to unlearn a whole lot when you started studying this stuff on your own. No. I I more had to it was more about the materialist perspective I think that I had to unlearn, which is sort of just what everyone walks around having, I think. Um a kind of materialist, rationalist perspective on everything that drowns out all that kind of stuff that was really, uh, you know, I was having wild dreams and I mean, stuff, stuff like that, that I'm, you know, what do you do with that when you just go, it's just a dream. It's like, well, this affected my whole day. This affected me for two weeks, you know, like it can't be just a brain static, you know, stuff like that. So um, there were things I was looking for. And so Jung was where I found a lot of, I f- that was the first place I found anyone who was talking about anything like that. And then too, I could understand Christianity in a way that, okay, maybe I don't have to read the Bible like it's literal, you know, like a, like a materialist Bible, but maybe like a lot of this is symbolic and maybe a lot of this is about the narrative and I'd never encountered that before. And the people around me weren't talking like that. I mean, art history classes are like, um, this painting was painted by the king so that he could impress his subjects and it's all about power and it's all about status and it has nothing to do with symbolism or you know like the rich cultural the the religious history the they left all that out so I found what I was looking for with Jung um, all the things that were kind of getting left out I guess for me the religious stuff the art stuff just my personal experience stuff um yeah, so I, I dug into that, and that really changed the way I was looking at art. And I didn't find that anybody else was talking about it, at least around me, you know? Yeah, I had the exact same experience. Well, not the okay. exact same experience. The experience of people not knowing what I was talking about, um, except my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law is a big uh, Jungian scholar <clears throat> and uh, opera singer, former opera singer, actually. Oh. Yeah, it was funny because I went from... Um, listening to you talk about doing landscaping and then restaurants and then hating restaurants. I did, I worked in restaurants for eight years. So pretty much my entire twenties was spent in restaurants. And then I worked doing a custom window restoration with my brother-in-law for a while. And that was where I got the real, like the extreme of going from pouring really expensive wine for really wealthy people in Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia to getting yelled at by blue collar guys on a job site for stepping on their plywood or something like that. You know, the, the, a lot of ball busting going on. 
those extremes, um, while I was going through all that, I was trying to find ways to rebuild um, a spiritual worldview because my undergrad experience was at a liberal arts school in Virginia. So we had to take religion classes. And then, but the religion classes I took were entirely deconstructivist. So they were enti- it was entirely a critical perspective of showing you how this can't be true because of this inconsistency, this inconsistency, this inconsistency. And it was, it completely shattered like what I was, I was raised in a um, Calvinist uh, Presbyterian church. Uh, There's a lot of kind of weird stuff going on with that particular church. However, um, it had been really comforting to know all those Bible stories growing up. And then you hit college and then it all gets kind of shattered by these, by intellectuals. And then even my philosophy classes were the same thing. It was all a relativistic approach. So I would have these professors tell me, you know, that everything's relative to a degree. Uh, the Bible is not true the way you think it is. And um, go out there and be an enlightened um, rationalist. It seems to be what I came away with, which, which really destroyed all the, all the beauty of everything that I kind of cared about. So then restaurants is like probably the worst place to go after your worldview falls apart because it's just like, hey, you're, you're, you're working long hours, you're, you're drinking heavily, you're around a bunch of a lot of creative people who don't have their lives together. Uh, and then you're supposed to have some kind of consistency when you're, you're working at night, you're not, you don't see the sunshine and what do you do to blow off steam? Just drink more. Like, I mean, that's anyway, um, those, the thing about Jung when I first started reading him was that he, the interdisciplinary approach, when I first started reading him, I was like, wait a minute, he's talking about mythology. Uh, wait a minute. He's talking about religion. Oh, he's talking about art. Oh, he's talking about theater. And I'm, I'm sitting there going like, why did nobody mention this guy to me when I was an undergrad? It's like, you, you just skip over cause he's a little too weird. And then, um, my, my brother-in-law gave me uh, answer to Job as a gift. So that was the first complete young text I read. And I'd read a couple essays in the Joseph Campbell collection, the one that he curated for uh, Viking press. The answer to Job completely blew my mind apart. And then I went to film school. So I'm riding on this, like, this high of, oh, I got to feel like I'm on the right track. Like, I'm going to figure this out. Like, I'm going to chart my creative path and everything's going to be great. And this is 2016 was my first year of film school. And then I run and slam into this brick wall of modern SJW campus culture, postmodern criticism. And the whiplash was was extreme, to say the least. Uh, But yeah, the the thing about Jung that really has continued to be interesting to me is that the the amount of freaking footnotes that you can research and the amount of things that like just reading answer to Job, I'm like, I've never read anything about Lilith. Guess I'll do some research on Lilith. It's like, oh, I've never read anything about, um, you know, the Vatican II. I should probably learn a little bit about that. And oh, I don't know about this translation. Why don't I know Latin or Greek? This is like killing me. I feel so stupid. Uh, (laughs) One of the things that Jung talks about in I think it's in archetypes uh the child is father to the man he talks about the golden child archetype and the wise old man being the same thing and I think the reason I asked you about like where you came from and like what you did growing up is because I I, I want to see if there's actually a connection between what you're focusing on now and things that fascinated you when you were a child 
because I'm finding in my own path that what I really care about now is a more mature version about what I geeked out at as a kid. So is that something you can speak to with what you're working on right now? Yeah, I, th- I think so, which is just something it's funny that you bring that up because if you'd asked me maybe even a few months ago or something, I, I would have not been sure what to say about that. But the more I think about it, um, okay, I'm not going to be a pioneer conquering the West, right? But yeah. I can explore, yeah. Uh, but I can explore places that are largely unexplored or at least largely unexplored recently um in a an in inner space if that doesn't sound too new agey or whatever no, no, go for it emily I, um, I, I, can, I i can handle it i don't like that sort of thing so that's why i say like i don't want to sound like a new like a new ager but the longer that i look into this stuff that's just the more i mean what are you gonna you have to say something about it um and to me i think yeah that that's that's what I found myself doing is going, okay, there's all these places that you can go that are kind of the fringe of everything that people won't really talk about, but you can explore and there's things to look at. I mean, um, yeah. And then you can bring it back a little bit and try to show something that you saw there. And I, I've, I think it's kind of like the, I mean, it's kind of like the guy, the mountain man who goes out, he makes a little path out into the wilderness and then he, He's bumming around out there. He comes back. And when a few more people come, it becomes like a road. Right. Mm-hmm. But the family can't go first. Right. The guy who's going out by himself, he has to go first, probably because he doesn't mind like getting out there and getting dirty a little bit. But when it's time to be settled, it's like, well, there's already been some people out here exploring something like that. I don't know if that sounds I don't know. I don't know how that sounds, but I think I feel like that's <laughs> kind of what's happening. No, that's no, I, t- I totally get what you're saying. The, the problem, man, I was talking to, so one of my sisters, uh, well, all my sisters are, are pretty um, intense ladies, but I was talking to my, my sister Leah about how everyone is becoming a life coach and how that's a new career path. And I said, what do you think's going on with that? Because she's like a CEO kind of boss lady. She's managed major restaurants best of philly like total big shot boss lady and and i said what's up with all the life coaches now because i would hear about people becoming life coaches who did not have their life together and i thought i'm like this this lady here like are you serious i I saw her like passed out in a gutter a couple weeks ago that she's not a life coach and and leah said well uh they started off as yoga instructors and thought that was going to be it And now they decided, oh, I'm going to be a life coach. And when that doesn't work out, you know what's coming next? I was like, please tell me what's coming next. She goes, spirit mediums. Yeah. I couldn't argue with her. And Leah is not into any of that stuff. I mean, if you sit down and talk about like art and music with Leah, she's, she's very practical, very like boots on the ground, you know, oriented and and when she told me that, it all made sense that she was seeing a pattern of people without direction in their life looking for some kind of structure. And then there are these cultural waves of what's considered an interesting spiritual path. And the new age thing is unfortunately this weird mishmash of things you can pull from, from all over the place to find your own individual path 
but what I, I mean, what I'm learning now is that you can do that for a while, but eventually you're just kind of grasping at these sort of ephemeral things without some kind of firm foundation. There was a question in there somewhere, Emily, I, I completely lost it when I went on that rant. Oh, exploring new places. So the, one of the interesting things, when I first became aware of your artwork, uh, Arthur told me I needed to check out your Instagram page. And the first thing I saw was your Jonah uh, piece. And it just like, it, it just hit me so hard. Like the second I looked at it, I went like, oh, she's serious. And I think it was because growing up, you see these little kids books, cartoon illustrations of a whale that smiles and spits up Jonah um, or, you know, uh, children's Bible stories where you read about the big fish. And then I don't know, are you, are you a Lord of Spirits listener? I'm not, but everyone I talk to is. So I need to get on that. They did an episode about Leviathan and Behemoth. And when uh, Father Stephen says, you know, Jonah doesn't get swallowed by a fish or a whale. He's swallowed by Leviathan. I just went, wait, what? Because, you know, I'm, I'm reading the King James Version here my whole childhood. And I'm just thinking, wait, that doesn't, that, that doesn't track with me at all. And then I hear, oh, yeah, Tolkien did a translation of that book of the Bible. And I, I was, wait, wait, really? So that's worth checking out um, if you hadn't heard of that. Um, there was some kind of a Christian publisher that was commissioning a graphic novel based off of Tolkien's translation, if I remember correctly. There's so much going on now. It's hard to keep track of all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So when I heard about the Leviathan and then saw your artwork, I immediately went like, oh, she gets it. Because you have these patterns in there that remind me very much of Alex Gray um, and kind of like visionary art, but it's done in this way that's there's a numinous quality to the way you present that story because even the colors of the, the, the monster at the bottom have this kind of hellfire infernal quality to them. And then the way the clouds are at the top have this sort of heavenly thing. And then the chaos of the waves. And then when Jonah, the falling figure to me is the most intense part of that image. Cause it's, it's you're just like, Oh, this is the fall, you know, in some kind of fractal repeating way throughout the Bible and, you know, other literature. But I never imagined that someone would put that style with that content, I think is what I'm really getting at here. Because you get, you know, like Renaissance art of the Bible, you get, um, you know, late 80s, early 90s, really calm, pastoral, precious moment style depictions of Bible stories. And then you get VeggieTales, which I mentioned. Um, but then there was something about your piece that was scary. It was scary and it was confrontational in a way that I think that there's this smoothing over of how radical, radical might not be the right word, of how intense, dangerous, and fraught with peril the Bible actually is, especially the Old Testament. And seeing such a visceral presentation of that in that visionary style really caught my attention. And I was like, well, what is, what is she listening to? What is she reading? It turns out you're reading a lot of similar things. Has that style been a recent thing? Like, how's that? Can you talk a yeah. little bit about that? So I'll tell you how that happened. Um, I used to draw in the way I was trained, which is kind of like a, a cross between probably something like Tumblr art and realism. I guess when you're in illustration, they want you to be able to, to draw realistically. It's not all just about your, you know, smearing paint on the canvas, which 
the art department, the fine art department was, you didn't have to learn how to draw like structure, like realistically at all. Okay, wait, hang, hang, on, hang on. Let me interrupt you real quick. Yeah. I have another question to ask. We can get back to that style sure. in just a second. Did you show up at art school and they looked at you and went, illustration? Tell me how that story was it like a sorting hat, Harry Potter style? Oh, like, yeah. I mean, basically, I mean, essentially, that's what it was. There was a, there was an advisor and I brought my sketchbooks. You know, I showed up with my what my high school like SAT and my my GPA or whatever, which was pretty good. I was a good student and they didn't look at that at all. They don't care when you go to art school that they're, they're like, we get it. Like, you don't have to be <laughs> passing your classes to get in, but we want to see your sketchbook or whatever you're working on. And he just started flipping through. He goes, oh illustration and I said I don't know what that means yeah um because I didn't know what it meant I didn't know oh my god I I guess I've heard of an illustrator but I don't really know what that is you know I knew I probably it was definitely more fitting than like a gallery artist I would say or something like that um but thank god that I got put in illustration because the professor that I had had been a very uh what do you it's not modeling but you okay he worked in Detroit doing the drawings for cars okay what is that called it's it's like the blueprint for drafting yes it's something like that it's like industrial drafting or I can't um... something like that and he was an old school guy and he made sure that you knew how to draw three-dimensional objects and that you knew how like the real world things were laid out and and in the art department the fine arts department I should say they they did not do that and you could tell because the second year students had these like scribbles on the wall and you go, what are they doing up there? Like that, that just didn't work for me. I don't really like a lot of contemporary stuff like that. I'm like, what are they? They didn't learn how to draw a vase. You know, they didn't learn how to draw a rounded form fully with, it was so strange. So thank God for that. But yeah, it was essentially the sorting hat advisor who just was like, you're, you're an illustration. So you, you um, did get a structured approach to representing objects in the world in a realistic yes. way. Okay, Thank so that's, that's the foundation that you got out of art school. Okay, yeah. so back to the original question about right. Jonah. Right, okay, so what had happened was I, was I was drawing stuff that was fairly bland. You know, it was kind of um, angsty, I suppose you could say, because I was having a bad time, so therefore my art was having a bad time. I met a guy who like the first thing he said to me was do you want to try acid and I was like yes I want to try acid first thing that was nearly the first thing I always go back to I'm like who does that you know what it was just one of those things where I was like well I don't know what's going on and I need something real to happen and I think that you know people people like these things right you know I mean when you're in art school and you're like you know everybody's like smoking weed and you're like oh like Bob Marley'd out and you're like, we'll do acid, right? Sure. Okay. So, yeah. So I, so I, after that, I, I took acid once, almost nothing happened. It was interesting, but nothing happened. The next time I did it, I had the full blown, like mystical experience kind of thing. It was wild. Um, and after that, my drawings were completely different. I drew completely differently and it wasn't on purpose. Um, that's just how it was. So before it was really toned down, uh, you know, not a lot of color. Then suddenly it was color, bright color, like contrast, like everything I do is over the top of the color. I can't seem to just get it toned down. Um, and it was, there'd be either an above below kind of thing or a symmetrical aspect to it. 
and I couldn't get away from that. So that's just what was coming out after that. You know, I had and and so my the, the, the style kind of emerged because of that. And there was one other kid in my art school who was a few years ahead of me. He was drawing in colored pencil on black board, uh, black illustration board, and nobody else was doing that. But the weird thing about doing that is when you draw on white, draw in white on something that's black, it just reverses the way that you think about it somehow, because you're starting with the light instead of with the dark. I don't know if that makes sense, but it was it was this process that just like clicked. And I think he was probably studying, you know, people like Alex Gray and probably like Robert Venosa. And I don't know if, if you've heard of him, but he was a big uh, visionary arts guy back Venosa. in the... I do not know Robert They're beautiful, Venosa. but very um, strange shapes and like, you know, blobs and light. And, but there's a style to it. I hadn't, I hadn't seen any of that really, but there was one kid who's a few years ahead of me. And I, I took that style that he was doing, which was the colored pencil on starting with black and then building up the the color and ran with it and I just couldn't stop doing that so um it wasn't something I did intentionally I guess is what I'm getting at it was something that just happened and it was very strange you know I was uncomfortable with it because I didn't like to be noticed and didn't like to be looked at and I didn't want to make a big uh fuss I don't know and so it was totally contrary to what I had been doing before it was just over the top it was like something else so it just changed everything I suppose and it stuck well good because I like it uh (laughs) are you familiar with how they did uh it's gonna really uh date myself here um Batman the animated series the um one in the 90s no so they started off with um a black background and everything was done on black so that you had to pull things out of the shadows because they wanted Batman to be a figure of the night. So everything, they called it dark deco because it had these kind of like 1930s style buildings and it mashed together a couple different timelines. And, you know, not every episode of that series is great, but there are some really amazing episodes that really pull that out. And also if you look at um, like film noir and early, early silent films, it took so much light to expose an image uh, because the film stock wasn't fast enough that everything had what they call chiaroscuro, which is like really high contrast, lots of shadows. And if you had a low budget, the best way to hide the fact that you didn't have a budget was to light really sparingly and have things come out of the shadows. So you couldn't see the weaknesses of the set you built that was probably made out of cardboard. Um, so that now that's really interesting that you're bringing things out of the dark. It's like, it's like you're pulling things there's a there's a relationship between kind of like exploring the unconscious which is dark shadow and then you're trying to pull light out of it even in your process not just your subject matter yeah that's cool yeah i i of course didn't think of it that way but it does it was another thing that just kind of added on to that um different way of approaching it okay man that's awesome okay i was gonna i was gonna ask you about colored pencils because uh, that's some really detailed work for colored pencil. I mean, I remember trying to play around with those when I was a kid and I did not have a painterly eye or a colored pencil eye for any of that kind of stuff. So one psychedelic experience completely shifted the way you approached art. Everything really, but yeah, definitely art. Um, Yeah, it was one of those, you know, dissolve into everything kind of things. And I'd been having a lot of doubts about, 
um, religion, I guess, you know, I was like, is this a big game that was played and they're just tricking people? Like, is any of it real? I don't know what to do with this. And I was really struggling with that. It was like, it bothered me a lot. Um, and after that, I didn't have a doubt anymore. You know, it didn't, I didn't wonder, is God real or something? I was like, there's, there's something I don't have, you know, there's no more questions. I know it's real. And now I have to get my shit together for real because this was a real thing that happened. And now I have to deal with it. And I think the art that came out of it was me dealing with it, I guess. So I have like a million questions. Um, when it comes to talking about psychedelics, and this is always like a weird, it's very weird for me to talk about it because, you know, baggage, whatever. Um, the distinction between a psychedelic experience and a religious experience and an authentically religious mystical experience is something I'm interested in because it seems like psychedelics give you the, I mean, obviously the feeling of a connection with the divine and a mystical experience. But if there's no kind of anchor point um, to something in a way that is, can be practically incorporated into the way you live your life, it seems like you kind of end up chasing your tail. Have you had experiences of that nature that are not directly related to psychedelics, where you feel the hand of the divine in the way you're moving? Yeah, that's a good question. And that's such a messy topic too. It's so hard to talk about right now. I mean, psychedelics has this like emotional charge beneath yeah. it, it seems like when people talk about it. Um, yeah, so previously to that, before trying psychedelics or you know anything, um, like I said, I was having very intense dreams uh, a lot. And I'd had an out-of-body experience just randomly. You know, I was looking in a mirror late at night and I just zapped out. I mean, I felt like I was looking down on myself suddenly. That was odd, you know, um, that had never happened before. And I'd had another experience, which I feel very odd talking about because people don't talk about things like this in a way that's like grounded maybe, or I, I don't know, it's just a weird thing to bring up, but I did, I'd had a a vision or something previous to that where I felt the presence of what I felt like was Christ you know it was like that was the image that that came with it and it was like a presence of another person it's like I was not in the room alone which is a very strange feeling mm -hmm. um that also before it was before I tried psychedelics and it um I was having a lot of doubt, a lot, I, a lot of struggle with what is really going on. What is, what is happening to, you know, all the time. And it gave me some kind of um, comfort or something momentarily, even though I was also kind of disturbed because I'm like, I can't tell anyone that happened. You know, that was very weird. My family's going to be like, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing? You know, off in college, you know, getting into, um, I tattooed a little fish on my arm after that because I had to, I was like, if I don't mark it, it won't be real. Something like that. Um, which was an odd thing to do that my what, parents you, weren't you happy self, with. You self-tattooed? I did. Yes. I prison oh, tattooed wow. a fish on my arm, <laughs> oh, which is a phase that I stick and poke was kind of a thing at school. I, the kids were, the kids were doing it and I was oh. like, well, I'm going to do a fucking fish. Um, sorry okay so yeah I, and then and then after the psychedelic experience I 
it was like I was inundated with um it was like if you're gonna use Jungian terms you could say like the unconscious was flooding me all the time it was you know so I'm, I'm going to it was these like sometimes I don't want to sound like a schizophrenic sometimes auditory you know I knew there weren't voices in my head telling me to do things but there was it was so um forceful you know images and and uh sometimes noises and things like that and it's not like I was hearing them and I was confused about what is reality it was in that realm of imagination or wherever that is, which is a real place. And depending on how probably open or creative you are, it's more real than say, if you're an accountant and this never, you know, comes up in your life, you know, it's probably not very real, but because it's like right there, it was just everywhere. And, and I had, I mean, I had many strange things happen. Um, a few years ago over Easter, I had a crazy religious experience that had nothing to do with drugs at all. It was just spontaneous. So I don't know. I'm, I don't know if I'm susceptible or if I opened myself up somehow and it doesn't close or. Um, anyway, I forgot what your original question was. Maybe if there's a difference between those kind of experiences or. or uh, yeah, well, but, the, well but, no, you've answered a lot of it because it, more my interest was the. So it's funny. Um, are you familiar with Duncan Trussell? Yes. Okay. I remember one time <laughs> I was listening to one of his podcasts and he said, Hey man, you don't find acid. Acid finds you. And I remember thinking because I had been told by my pastor that uh, when God has his his hands his hand on you or his eyes on you, he will find you. And then I also heard from uh, my my screenwriting mentor that um, he he told me, and this is a pretty often uh, repeated maxim that. Uh, when this, when the student is ready, the master will appear. Like it's all the, the same thing over and over again. And I find that those different layers of finding meaning when you're open to development is something that like, you, okay, you're talking about like the openness and like having these experiences when the psyche is really active. Um, I've got one for you. And these are things I don't really talk about a whole lot. So I'm sort of like outing myself as a crazy person on my own podcast, but, uh, but yeah, let's do it. Um, any, anytime I've discussed psychedelic experiences with my family, I've always been met with concern and which is completely reasonable because my family loves me, they care about me and they don't want anything bad to happen to me. Um, so yes, um, I have had psychedelic experiences that told me things I was doing wrong in my life. Like there was one, there was one time, um, I was doing a lot of strongman training for about two years. And so I'd be hitting the gym three or four days a week doing like really heavy workouts. And then I was also working four nights a week at this fancy restaurant. And then to wind down from these ridiculous shifts, I would work, I'd be drinking like three double IPAs and you know what, like it was just not a healthy way to live to put that much stress on your body. And so one day it was new year's day. I did a very heavy squat workout. I went home, took a nap. And then I indulged in some psilocybin mushrooms and the resulting journey I went on gave me images of myself as a Achilles style hero on a vase and then turning into a skeleton in chains. And 
as I was writing down, that was just one image of, of countless that particular experience. But what I learned from that was like, oh, your obsessive pursuit of strength goals is actually holding you back and damaging you. And after that, I toned things down and started, I still did strongman training, but I didn't use it as a way to, I was using it as a, as penance almost. I realized that it was a, I was punishing myself for things not going well and I was blaming myself. So I dealt with it by forcing myself to extremes. When you try to explain that to someone uh, who's concerned about your well-being, and they have friends who have overdone psychedelics and have had schizophrenic tendencies and gone off the deep end, um, it's re it's really dangerous territory. And I have I have friends that were incredibly influential on me who today are just completely off the deep end, and it's really heartbreaking to see how. Psychedelics can either be a lens that shows you a world that you can incorporate into your own life in a meaningful way, but it can also be a lens that shows you a better way to party and have fun, which at the surface level is how a lot of people treat it. And it's been really rough for me to see people that go down that particular path. But there was another experience I had that was not drug induced at all. Um, I was on a train. This is when I was living in Chicago. And I had this kind of ritual because it was a 45 minute train ride to get to work. So I would listen to Mozart's, nah, excuse me, Mozart's Requiem on the ride in, which was about like 45 minutes. So I'd always be listening to religious music and, and going to, you know, sling $400 bottles of wine. <clears throat> and I'm sitting there and I had been putting off reading. I was like, oh, I'm adjusting to a new job. I need to get back in the gym. I got to do this, this, and this. I'm in a new neighborhood, new city. I don't really have time to read. Everything's fine. And one day while listening to Mozart's Requiem on the train, uh, I had one of those visions, one of those images come to mind. And it was so bizarre because I saw an image of a man with an elaborate oriental rug over his shoulders as a cape. And there was an old woman with her heel on the, the, the carpet, like holding it down so he couldn't move forward. And so he's trying to move. He's got this cape. And then he sees a door. And the door has a huge cross on it. It's like an opening, a door, two doors that open. And there's a cross in the middle. So he shakes off the garment, opens the door. And on the other side of the door, there are all these mythological creatures and fantastic animals. And then I snapped out of it and I was like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? Because completely unbidden. I'm like, what the hell? Wrote it down and then talked to my analyst about it. And he went, have you been meaning to return to the Bible? Have you been meaning to study religion? Have you been meaning to get back to this and haven't gotten around to it? And I realized like, oh yeah, I've really been putting that off. So then I picked up archetypes and like burned through it. Um, and that was a week before the lockdown. Oof. <laughs> so I went, I did, I read archetypes, just burned through that. And then I was like, well, I got to read Ion. I got to read, I got to, got to read it. So I, now this was ill-advised and for anyone listening, do not read Carl Jung when you're in quarantine and don't get out very much 
because I really thought I was going crazy. There was a, there was a good um, couple weeks there where I had to call my girlfriend and just be like, we're like, we're the world is real, right? Like, is everything okay? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, so yes, when things, those images kind of pop up and the psyche is really active. Um, I'm telling you this to let you know that you're fine, Emily. It's, it's, I don't think you're crazy. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think the crazier things have probably happened to each of us that are, we're probably not going to share. Hmm. Um, but I do think that there's something about, um, openness, creativity, um, and just willingness to experience that stuff and also managing, um, the amount of noise in your daily life. I've been finding more and more that the less um, static I get from the news, the more I'm able to engage with ideas when they pop into my head. So like, I will have to sit down in front of my screenplay and just wait. Sometimes I'll have to wait like half an hour for anything to happen and then I'll get an image and I'm like, oh, let's follow that image. And then, he, But it requires like a stillness and a kind of like a meditative sort of quiet to let that happen to let the the unconscious work through you uh which brings me to my next question do you ritualize your art do you have any rituals that help you get into that headspace do you have any rituals that make your life as an artist work that's a good question um I don't know if I really do have exactly a ritual. There's nothing that I do all the time that's consistent. Usually, let's see, how does it usually go? I'm usually trying to figure something out that I don't understand. So it's just, it's beyond my grasp of understanding. And it's, if you understand something too much, it's like too, it's, does it's not going to be genuine. I feel for me, like if I'm, trying to do something very much on purpose, it's really hard to make it go. But the things that want to go are those things that are just out of reach, I think. Um, and so it, I, I'm slow too. It'll take me a long time to do a, a drawing like that. Jonah drawing probably took me, I don't know, four, six months of, of working on the weekends or something like that. You know, so I'm not doing it all the time. It's just when I have time but it's, it's this processing of something. So I don't know if I have a ritual. I guess I don't would be the short answer. Um, I know that I have to listen to something when I'm drawing. I almost always have to have something on because otherwise the front, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to butcher this, but the front Dude, part of my brain go, go is as new like, age as possible. Yeah, yeah. The, the front part of my brain is going, this is stupid. This is a waste of time. No one's going to look at this. We're putting all this time into something that's not going to go anywhere. This isn't even very good. Like, why are you? And I'll get this critical thing going that completely keeps me from just being able to make something. So part of my ritual for a long time, not really, not anymore, but was I'd put on the biblical lectures, you know, put on Jordan Peterson. And this was like before maybe Akira, the Don was a thing. I don't know if you've heard oh, of nice. him, oh, but yeah, I I'd put some like electronic, just chill music underneath it. And so that there's a rhythm to it, you know, it's not just, just the, the talking and kind of lose myself in thinking about stuff and then things can go. But there is a, there is a, the big thing about distraction or about you have to sit there for a while and wait until it quiets down. Um, I work better at night 
rather than in the morning. Morning is time to get up and go, right? And then in the afternoon or evening, things kind of settle. And I feel like things kind of, they come easier. So I don't have a super ritual, but I, I have a few things that are almost always going on is I've got to have like a lecture or some music or a book or something going in the background. So I don't have to think because if I've got that critical thinking going on, it's not happening. Um, so you have to distract your super ego with some yeah. background noise. Yep. I have to get rid of that. And uh, like Jordan Peterson's a good one to just toss on because it's the same themes and he's telling you to do stuff and he's telling you to, you know, it's like a good thing to focus on. If you're going to focus like on something. For, for yeah. <laughs> Jordan Peterson is my hype music. Um, yeah. Yeah. The biblical lectures. I listened to them over and over again. That was super helpful. And I was focusing on Gen Genesis. So there was that too. Um, but yeah, that's probably about it because otherwise I'm so chaotic. I can't seem to keep a consistent like a uh, routine almost i'm absolutely chaotic it's horrible i'm sorry it's okay no it's okay you have to <laughs> you have to kind of surf that that uh that i'm the opposite i have to do my creative work in the morning i have to do any writing any <clears throat> any explorations like that before I do anything else. And then I try to do some kind of like, it's either martial arts or lifting in the evening to kind of like just clean everything out sort of. But yeah, I got to do that first thing in the morning before any distractions get in or I don't get it done. Because I will tell myself, oh, just get this done, this done, then come back and write. And I never do. I will find a way to distract myself. I'll be like, oh, I need to cook. I need to clean something. I need to run errands. And if I don't do it first thing, it just gets completely neglected, which is miserable. I just forgot another question I had. I hate when that happens. What are we talking about? Ritual, religious experience. I'm not too crazy because we're all a little crazy. Um, <laughs> oh, so then, um, no, I, I want to get back to the uh, the new age thing. So why aren't you a witch? Oh, good question. That's a silly question. Great question. No, that is very, that is very fair. I really should be, I should be an Instagram witch. You should, I should be a hedge be... witch. You should be a Wiccan, Emily. <laughs> is it because your husband won't be... let you? No, I should be. I also think, I mean, no, I don't think he'd put up with that. But um, but I, like, the tendency is all there, right? To be the, I'm doing your tarot cards and what is your sign and crystals and whatever. But um, I hate that stuff. I just hate it. Like, I like some of, some of, I like everything on the periphery of the new age, but there's something about it that just feels gross. I, I feel very um, strongly attached to my Christian heritage. I, I really do. I feel like, I don't know how people just float off into like, you're not a Buddhist if you're from Michigan, right? Like, you can pretend, but you're not, like, you don't really know what that means. Mm -hmm. It's you being not a Christian trying to be something, like, you're trying to, that's my opinion of it. It's fine if you're a Buddhist, I don't care. But, you know, like, for me, that's not going to work. Um, that's not where my family comes from. That's not where my, you know, my pocket of, like, my community doesn't come from that. It's like, I, I feel very attached to, like, our cultural heritage and I think a lot so a lot of that I end up like batting that new stuff away I'm like that's off like that's off I don't I don't know how I don't how else to describe it um 
it's stu- I just find a lot of it stupid. It's it's so so much of it is stupid. It's wishy washy. There's no foundation to it. It's more like feel good kind of stuff, and that's fine if you want to feel good. But man, I was not feeling good for so long. So being like, you know, the new agey good vibes thing was not gonna click with me. Um, I needed something more than that. It like had to really work. You know, it couldn't. I tried like the Alan Watts. You know, I'm gonna meditate and. Taoism is cool, but it w- it doesn't help you when you're having a really bad time. I don't think. I think Jordan Peterson's right about that. Like, there's a uh, you have to have some kind of foundation on that. And you so, also you have to confront the shadow. You have to yeah go into the darkness. Mm-hmm. The the good vibes thing is is just collapses when you're you're hungry. Yeah. <laughs> Which it doesn't yeah. stick. So yeah, the reason I ask is because I've. I found that there are a couple of witches that I've, I've come across and there are, how do I put this? There are women that I used to spend time with who now are witches. And I remember looking at one of their Instagram posts and seeing them quoting the red book and just talking about all this cool stuff in it. And I remember looking at the post and just going, how did I look at Jung, read Jung, and come back to Christianity after being disillusioned? And someone else reads Jung and goes, I'm going way out there with anything vaguely spiritual that suits my mood right now in an esoteric way. And I'm really torn about it because I do find all that stuff fascinating. Are you familiar with the Weird Studies podcast? Have you ever listened to that? No, but it's been suggested to me. I've heard of it. So I listen to that um, podcast all the time. So J.F. Martell, one of the hosts, was a guest on Pajot's podcast once. I think it was called The Weird and the Sacred. So he's, he's Roman Catholic, and his co-host is a practicing Zen Buddhist, I believe. But so, so he's a documentary filmmaker, Roman Catholic, and his co-host is a Zen Buddhist um, musicology professor who also does like boxing, which is, it's amazing. So you, you, these guys are like really steeped in philosophy and like really incredibly intelligent. And they break down stuff like, let's talk about the film Naked Lunch, you know, for two hours, or let's talk about, um, uh, they have this whole series that they're doing sporadically where they break down each of the major arcana cards in the tarot deck so they'll have an entire hour and a half to two hours breaking down the symbolism of a single tarot card and i have not studied that in any deep kind of way but they always bring it back to a discussion of symbolism and how these kind of things play with your own consciousness so i look at that from an act i'm academically fascinated by it but I stop at the academic fascination. And I don't know if that means I'm closed-minded. I don't know if that means that I'm missing something, but a lot of those esoteric traditions grew out of Christian communities, which is another just weird thing that I'm, I'm, I'm studying my way through it kind of gradually just so I understand it. But yeah, I don't know. It, it's, um, the fact that you can come at something like Jung and you can go in two radically different directions, I think is, is something that just fascinates me. So you, you didn't walk around with crystals in your backpack. 
Um, no, no I did I... not. I bought a rosary at one point. I, I'm, I'm like raised Protestant. That's not a thing that we do. It's like not allowed. And I was like, I need something to hold in my hands that reminds me of, of something like a religious token, you know, somehow that, that keeps me together because uh, I just needed it all the time. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense, but so I went, the, I just, I mean, I, I have all those tendencies. I could have been a witch or a Wiccan or whatever, you know, it's like that. I, I like being outside. I like, you know, plants and herbs and what is it? You know, um, you have all the essential, symptoms. essential oh, yeah. oils. I have all the symptoms, but not the disease. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Sorry. That was mean. Um, no, it's, it's, it's an opinion. It's, it's fine. Yeah. No, I'm just okay. curious about like it. it because, because I, I do find that, that, women are, are way more likely to be involved in that kind of stuff or very feminine men is, sure. has, been, has been my experience. So I think women are naturally drawn to those kinds of things. And in the absence of a religious framework, that's actually working that that's just kind of the natural way that women go, you know, they're in, like it, all women's soap products are like rosemary and lavender I mean it's all like plants and for men it's like it's whatever but women it just seems like a thing that women are drawn to naturally you know how many I mean women just keep little bottles of essential oil on the windowsill because that's like the the new thing that fixes everything it's just where you don't usually find men doing that I think it's natural but I think it's just because there's an absence of something else so there's a vacuum that is being so. filled with the new age stuff for people who are craving a more spiritual way of moving through the world. I think so. And something that includes nature, right? Because everybody knows you go for a walk, you go for a hike, you see a good sunrise, like you feel the religious impulse right there. Right. But if you go to a church that looks like a high school auditorium and the theater group is doing their little like new age worship music and you don't feel anything. Right. So it just makes sense. It's like, of course, nature, but I don't know. I don't, see that working out it doesn't have any it doesn't have enough foundation that's not um like you need culture you need a religious culture you know mm -hmm. to inform you at least that's how that's how i felt so and jung is so extensive you can read it and get anything out of it i mean you can you can say jung believed in god jung was an atheist jung was he was a scientist no he was a prophet i mean what was he who knows everything all of it none of it i mean it's it's all you can pull out whatever you want i think from jung it's almost like he's a he's an intersection of a bunch of different ideas and you can just take whatever road because i mean he did like the psychology of kundalini yoga um religion east and west like he's, he's he did all these fascinating discussions uh which it's one of the first things i read that was anything related to this kind of subject matter was the hero with a thousand faces you know uh, that's like a, a huge one obviously and I read that right before I uh, did a study abroad trip to India. So, yeah, you go from from a from white walls in a Protestant church to a Hindu temple after reading "Hero with a Thousand Faces." Wow, man, you, you can't. It's it's hard to man. You really can't go back. I also remember watching the Boondock Saints when I think I was a, a senior in high school. Ever see that movie? A long time ago. And and thinking, man, Catholics look badass. They have yeah. rosaries and they've got like Latin and their churches have cool art and all that stuff. And then, yeah. you know, but meanwhile, the church I was raised in, it's like, no, you know, icons are idolatry and and 
you know, Reformation Day, celebrating Martin Luther is the most important day of the year for us besides Christmas and Easter. And um, yeah, so, no, that does make sense with the, the witch thing, though. It's like really wanting a, a kind of numinous experience. Yeah. Something something that's not mediated in an entirely intellectual way, because you yeah. get even Alan Watts talked about that um, in one of his lectures. He said, uh, he said, is it any wonder that that uh, Protestant churches are arranged like old timey uh, schoolhouses? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I'd never I had never thought of that. And and now it's it's you can't unsee that after hearing yeah. something like that. So I want to I want to talk about the. Uh, confronting the shadow so one of the things and i'm going to keep coming back to this jonah piece that i got in the mail i haven't framed it yet but uh i i'm i've got a wall um actually the wall above my computer i've uh there's an artist named paul romano who does a lot of metal album covers and are you familiar with the band mastodon oh yeah okay do you know their album leviathan yes okay Okay, so you listen they to have amazing, Yeah, yeah. They have amazing covers. Oh, my gosh. So the first four albums and their latest album were all done by Paul Romano. He's a Philadelphia-based artist. And I have a print of Leviathan on my wall next to a portrait of Nick Diaz, UFC fighter, and a portrait of Jordan Peterson, which shows yes. a little bit how my brain works. It's mm-hmm. like violence, the intellect, the primal, the religious, like all kind of wrapped up at once. So I went to one of the first times I went to a gallery. This is uh, 2016, I think right before I went to film school. My friend Drew, who's an artist, his friend had a had a gallery presentation. Uh, Maria Teicher, she does beautiful, almost like photorealistic oil paintings. Uh, another Philly artist. So I went to uh, this gallery to see her her show. And I walk around a corner and I see a four foot, by four foot or maybe yeah it's five four by four or five by five painting of leviathan the whale and i i just freeze because I'm, I'm like what way that can't be real what, what am i what am i because everything else maria's work is a little bit smaller and i just freeze and then i and then i'm there for like probably like five minutes just staring at it and a couple of the people kind of come up next to me one of them goes is that real? And I go, okay, I'm not the only one who thought this maybe was, and, and, I, and I go, I, I, I don't know, is it? And, and so I go to the front desk of this gallery and I say, is that the real Leviathan? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, well, how did it get here? It's like, oh, Paul, let us put it up. And I said, well, what had, and I started like kind of babbling because I'm such a big fan of his work. And the lady says, go ask him. And I went, wait, is he here? She goes, yeah. And I said, I don't know what he looks like. Cause all I ever seen was his artwork. So she goes, okay, hang on a second. And she like walks me to the gallery and we walk right up to Paul Romano. And she goes, Paul, this is, what's your name? I'm like, Robert, Robert, meet Paul. He was asking about your painting. So I shook his hand and I, I'm like, Paul, I, I just, is that the real painting? And he goes, he goes, yeah. And I said, uh, can I ask you a couple questions about it? And so we, he, we walk over to the painting. And I noticed that the wave in the upper right-hand corner is a uh, Hokusai uh, reference from his um, views of Mount Fuji uh, painting series. And then I noticed there were a couple other elements and and there was like a demon in the water. And I'm like, what demon is that? He goes, oh, it's Naga. It's a water demon from India. So we start talking about like all this symbolism. And 
all this really cool stuff. And it turns out that he also has read a good bit of Young and Joseph Campbell. And so we sit there for like 10 minutes, just talking about this painting. And then like all these other metalheads start like coming out of the, the, the woodwork and just chit-chatting. And then, and so I, and I said, Hey, like, do you sell prints of this? And so I ordered a print and uh, he mailed it to me and it, really cool dude. He's uh, incredibly bright and very, very deeply connected to the archetypes and to that primal stuff. So your piece, the print is going to be going near my Leviathan print. Uh, wow. Yeah, that's awesome. That's that's a nice compliment right there. There's a, there's a nautical theme going on on this wall. Yeah, there is. One of these things we talked about having like a rosary and having a, um, a religious sort of totem. How much do you have to consciously seek out the darker aspects of your art or your own personality in order to, to actually achieve something creative? I mean, people throw around the term shadow work quite a bit, and that's not really what I'm asking, but that's sort yeah. of part of it. Like, how do, you, how do you make room for that in your process? I'll say specifically about that drawing that it's not as though I was trying to access it. It's that it was already there. Like I was right up in it, you know? So I, I haven't had to, um, I don't know, how do I, drawing was the way, is, is the way probably that I dealt with those kinds of things that are really hard to talk about like that like the shadowy things uh the really negative experiences because some of them are so it's not like you can point at one thing and go like this one bad thing happened and therefore i'm you know depressed or anxious or something like that it's like no there's there's this huge swirling mess of chaos i'm right in it all the time uh and so, I don't know. I don't know how to think about it. Like, I don't, it's not that I've had to make space for it. It's just there. I'm probably, I'm probably like, you know, big five stuff. I'm probably, I'm like, I used to be higher in neuroticism. I think just because I was um, dealing with more of those things, I think it went down, which is good. Have you um, retested your personality lately? Not recently, but I can just tell, you know, because I used to, it just every, like little things would, freak me out I would just be overwhelmed by you know negative emotion much more quickly um and so there wasn't really a it was I remember painting or painting drawing stuff like that and you know my grandma would say honey why don't you just paint like some flowers or something like that like could you do something happier and I'm like I'm like I don't know how like this is the um this is just what shows up you know so uh but by, I think by focusing on it and trying to first dig up those feelings, dig up those, like, where is this coming from? Why, you know, what is it exactly? And then listening to Jordan Peterson, you know, like clean, clean your room, um, you know, sort yourself out first and by focusing on it and not ignoring it, it helped to, it, it did help sort a lot of those problems out, but it was just sitting with it. So instead of not dealing with it, it was like, well, I'm just going to look at it and I'm going to keep looking at it. And then I'm going to look some more, you know, and just keep scratching that itch until it goes away, I guess. Cause I don't think I could draw something like that now, to be okay. honest. Does that make sense? 
Absolutely. I mean, the, yeah. the projects change. Well, first of all, depending on how long it takes to actually do something. Like I'm on the third draft of a feature screenplay and it is very different from what it started as. Because the first draft was written under duress in film school. Like I had to hit all these deadlines and there's a lot of shit in the first draft that just is just not good. It's just, it's, it's the worst. I found right before I went to film school, because I'm a, I'm a huge metalhead. Like I listen to metal constantly. I mean, you listen to metal, classical, um, church music, like religious music, or like dark ambient whatnot. And then when I hang out with my brothers, it's like hip hop and country music. I remember I went to a behemoth show. So two of the best metal bands today are called Behemoth and Leviathan, go figure. Uh, Leviathan's black metal and Behemoth is blackened death metal from Poland. So I've seen Behemoth live probably five times and they were a corpse paint and they have the whole pageantry is, is pretty remarkable pyrotechnics, everything. And because they're from Poland uh, and Poland is a Catholic country, they, their entire thing is basically a reaction to Catholicism. So the last time I saw them live, it was, I think it was 2016 and they had just come out with their album, which is titled the Satanist. And they played the album in its entirety. And I went there with my, my best friend, Josh, and I'm watching it. And I'm like right next to the edge of the pit. And he comes out and he's got a sensor and he's, he's burning incense and he is throwing communion wafers into the crowd. And he is, he's doing, he's basically doing a black mass. He's doing a mockery of, of, uh, of communion. And I had this moment where I'm sitting there just going, they don't have a whole lot without the church, do they? And it was a great show. Like I loved it. It was, you know, I shook hands with the bass player afterwards. He was, you know, signing autographs and, and, and I had a great time at the show, but the following week when my brother-in-law's uh, window restoration company, we had to extract a stained glass window from a Catholic church right outside of Philly. So I went from seeing a band perform the Satanist in its entirety and basically performing a black mass to pulling down a stained glass window that had the blessed Virgin on it and realizing that I'm always walking through these extremes of like that, which is holy and that, which is profane and the connection of a primal way of living, whether it's with lifting or martial arts seems to express itself through metal but then the more like higher, yeah, like literally higher um, qualities associated with, with God and the church. But I posted this photo on Instagram, it was a long time ago, where I had a split screen and one side was the bass player from Behemoth and the other side was a stained glass window. And my brother-in-law just goes, Abraxas is his comment. Wow, that's quite a comment. <laughs> wow. And, and so, and I, and this is something I'm still, I'm still kind of working through because I tried so hard to think my way through these contradictions, like even working on my thesis film, I'm, I'm busting my ass to make this, this like surrealist film on a third of the budget I had hoped for and freezing conditions with like half the crew I wanted. And I'm like making sure I get to the gym every day, but I'm also chain smoking Marlboros, you know, to get through a shooting day. And I remember my, my cinematographer, Michelle, looked at me and went, Robert, aren't you like a health guy? 
this is like while I'm smoking, I just went, Michelle, I'm aware of the contradiction. Let's set <laughs> the next shot. Uh, but there's this weird uh, element that I, that I'm that I'm and I've finally given up fighting. I fought it for a long time of the contradictions inherent in a lot of the things I do, and living through that requires faith. In this very strange way that I can't articulate, and not fighting it has enabled me to be more creative. And like I've got this. Um, uh, my girlfriend's father gave me this beautiful uh, pendant. It's a uh, Ethiopian lollibella cross. And uh, I wear it all the time. Uh, and But then I'll be wearing that sometimes underneath like a metal shirt. I realized that uh, I just have to keep living through it. Like I don't even listen to Behemoth anymore because I finally got to a point where I was like, I can't, I, I, I just don't, it's not doing it for me anymore because the blasphemy seems um what's the word contrived and i was just yeah, it's not my thing anymore sorry still listen to a lot of metal <laughs> you know anyway the conversation with the shadow the reason i wanted to bring this up is because and it's coming back to jonah again because of fairy tales and how the best fairy tales are the darkest and have the most like fucked up shit in them but then they're sanitized for a modern audience. And I think that that is doing a major disservice to children who need to understand that there are dark things in the world. So I'm wondering if that's something that you consider, something you think about, something that's part of your process or something that um, you know, comes up when you're exploring these things. Yeah, I don't, I don't know where, working on a kid's book right now, the book of Job which is very contradictory in a way so that's not kids material. I I'm right. I'm illustrating it for someone who wrote it. So I didn't come up with that idea, but it is, it's a very, like, you're going, what, um, how's that going to work? Um, and I think like a lot of the stuff I'm drawn to in the Bible is the stuff that's, uh, left out of Sunday school, you know? Um, and Yahweh is intense. There's no, like, like the old Testament is very metal. Like there's a lot going on. Um, you know, there's wrath, there's like, there's, there's uh destruction, there's like just untold suffering. And we just kind of don't talk about it, but it's all right there. And I mean, kids know what it is to be afraid. Like kids are terrified of the dark. I used to think there's a monster under my bed. I really thought it was there. You know, like kids know what it means to be afraid of something that is, you know, it's just instinctual. How are you adapting the book of Job for, a, for children? Good question. Um, I'm sure that's it, a work so in progress. So it uh, is a work in progress. It's still going, but uh, so the idea behind it was, well, it's not my idea behind it, but um, it's the last four chapters, I think, where God comes out of the whirlwind and he's describing creation and, you know, the depths and the, the vaults in, in heaven and different animals and things. So it's going to be a lighter uh, a lighter touch with a lot of that stuff and trying to point to kind of the wonder of it rather than and maybe the resilience of getting through things rather than simply you know god is kind of torturing job um that's the intention anyway we're gonna see see where it goes but i think we can pull it off a little is, this, a little uh, of that is the deceiver a character in this no he does not come in 
Yeah. So, so the, the beginning. bargain in the yeah. beginning isn't part of it. Have you yeah. read Answer to Job? I'm reading it right now. Again, mm-hmm. I'd read it before and I think I kind of missed a lot of, you know, it just a lot of it just goes over your head because it take, you have to sit with the, that stuff, right? You're going, okay, in this paragraph, he's talking about this and the next one he's talking about this and I don't know how he connects these things entirely. So I'm, I'm rereading it. Um, I haven't gotten to the end, so I'm still not sure what he's telling me, to be perfectly honest. It's so, it's complicated. Yeah. How do you but sit I'm, with something like, I heard you talk to uh, Vanderclay about how you you've read Ion like or Aeon more than once. Many times, okay. all this. I'm I'm always in some midpoint of reading that book. Don't okay. read that book, by the way. That's another thing. Don't don't do drugs and don't read it, Ion. That book will mess your life up. What are you getting out of it, though? That's what I'm so curious about. Much. <laughs> academic, intellectual, um, spiritual, creative. Because when I, when I read it, it was just like, if this is true, everything is way weirder and more important than I thought. Yeah. And I, before I read that book, I had a, I think I had a materialist tendency to live in a way where my decisions with the belief that my decisions are important, you know, positive or negative. After reading that, I was like, wait a minute, my decisions have cosmic consequences was kind of like in a weird way that's what i got out of it apart from the i can't believe you just traced the development of the fish symbol over fifteen thousand years or whatever it is like when i'm writing something if i'm doing a screenplay most of what i'm writing or reading rather is is research related to the world so the world i'm working in right now for this screenplay is is um celtic uh fairy tale motifs so I'm reading a lot of old fairy tales. I'm reading a lot of uh, Yeats Irish fairy tale collection and things like that. And, you know, books about fairies, like the Alan Lee, Brian Froud fairies book I've read many times. I like one of my favorite illustrated books. So I'm not reading about necessarily academic discussions of fairy lore. It's all about steeping myself, like in the the style, the imagery, the culture of it. So maybe I'm asking you to split hairs here between like your creative life and your, your intellectual life and your spiritual development, or is it all the same thing? I think it's all the same thing, uh, probably, but that book is so strange. So the first, I mean, that's an understatement, but the first time I read it, the first few times, I didn't really know what he's talking about because you know, every paragraph you hit some reference that you go, okay, I have to research this now. I don't know anything Nostradamus. about you have to read yeah. Nostradamus you have to understand astrology and you probably should have a little bit of Latin in your back pocket and maybe some Greek that would be good too and um you know the entire history of the church in the west and you know alchemy and Gnosticism I mean it's every it, he hits on so many things right so you can dig into it for as long as you want what I'm starting to find more recently is that he is first of all such a genius it's like overwhelming how much of a genius he was but he's painting an image over and over of the same thing roughly roughly the same thing in different ways and he just loops it and he's hitting you again and again with something that you can't put your finger on and I think a lot of part of what it's done I think not just reading that book but it helps is, you know, if you have this kind of materialist perspective, you kind of, I'm 
gonna make a mess of it, but you're kind of outside the story. And what Jung keeps pointing out is that you are right in the middle of the story and there's no getting out of that, that your little ego is surrounded by darkness on all sides. And there's just no getting out of it, but that that's where everything is, if that makes sense. It, it shifts like where you place your being, I feel like. I don't know if that makes sense. It's still something I'm working out, but it, it goes along a lot with what Peugeot talks about, I think, about having more of a phenomenological view of the world. Mm-hmm. where it's from your experience it's not this abstracted idea about what the world is and then you try to live in that it's it's starting with you and your experience i think that's part of what i don't know there's so many things in that book like it's even structured like a fractal i, I don't know if i've never heard anybody talk about this but he starts with the ego which is a very small chapter he goes to the shadow, barely spends any time on it, doesn't really tell you what it is. He goes to the anima, animus, kind of tells you a little bit about that, mostly about the anima, because when he talks about the animus, he gets very anima-possessed sounding. He do, he's like, that's my impression. I'm always like, oh, he must be so annoyed with these women that he's working with or something. Like, Have he's you read adult. Emma Young's essays on yeah. anima and animus? Okay, good. All right. Yeah, there's I not enough people, about it. Yeah, I know. There's, you got you to gotta read Emma. Yeah. Because the the guy, like, he's coming at it. He's, like, dealing with all these women with their animus problems. And he's probably like, oh, my God. I Like, like it's, you can tell. He gets annoyed when he talks about it. Women. Yeah, women. Uh, and then, you know, and then and you're going, okay, well, I'll just, we'll skip that. And then he gets to the self and it just takes off. So, like, it's structured in in this weird way where he starts off with, you know, like, like, what is the ego? How much role does it play? And how much is the shadow? But then it just... I don't know if I can, if, if that's making sense, but it's like, even in the way he wrote the book and structured the book, he's telling you something about the structure of something. And it just keeps unfolding like that. Like it just, this book is endless, which is why I'm stuck in it. I mean, it just keeps going and comes back around and then you go again. I have at least one more question. Do you have an analyst? No. No. Do no, you do, do you do your own dream work? Do you like how do yeah. you how do you structure that? Well, let's see. Or do you structure that? I I do actually. Um for the longest time I was just writing them down because I didn't know what to do with them, you know. So I started writing them down. And then I came across Jung doesn't really talk about how to at least that I I haven't seen where he talks about how to analyze your own dreams or what to do with them, you know, once you have it, what what to like practical steps, right? He's not he's not usually very practical. Um, I found Robert A. Johnson's book Inner Work, I think, and he mm-hmm. I took the steps out of it and just ran with those. Um, the book is kind of boring otherwise, but the steps are good. So I started doing that. I'll write it down, and then I'll write down all my associations with all the different things. I'll kind of amplify them you know does that remind me of something or from a story or you know a memory or something like that and then um there's another step to it what is it I think you were supposed to then relate it to your own life so how does this have to do with me or you know what what is what part of me is this where where is this coming from that could be me and then you try to actually do something with it right so if you just write them down every day but don't act on it if it doesn't change your conscious behavior then you're not really doing anything um you're trying to interact with with 
the unconscious, what it's giving you, right? To act on it, get feedback, get more feedback um, until you start incorporating the thing, right? Yeah, so that's that's how I do that. I've, I have not been remembering my dreams a lot recently, which is odd, but usually, usually I dream every night, at least one dream. I had a dream about megalithic stones last night. Nice. It's cool. Like those big, yeah, those big, uh, yeah, I'm gonna have to look into those now, but I can't remember anything else about it. So that's frustrating, but, um, it comes. Well, I'm, goes, I'm, I'm sure Pedro has a video about megalithic stones and probably he's got a video about everything now. The symbolism of the stones. I, the reason I ask is because people that I know, know that I care about symbolism and dreams and stuff like that. And they always tell me their dreams. And I look at them and go like, I'm not an analyst. Like I, I can, I can speculate on what I think this might mean, but I find that when I talk to my analyst, he I'll fixate on one part of the dream that I find is very weird. And then he'll bring up a part of the dream that I thought didn't mean anything. And that ends up being the key to understanding the whole dream. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've got my book of symbols somewhere around here. Uh, and I find that looking up the doesn't help, you know, yeah. like having like there's no like how to interpret using this culturally <laughs> accepted symbol. Right. That's I have one of those, too. It's a huge book. Is it the Tashin one? That big one with a, the hand on the front? Hang on. I love that one. Yes, 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 it is. Yeah, that one's awesome. But still, it doesn't help that much when I have dreams. Like, it's cool, but I find that I don't use it that much, actually. Actually, the now that you say that, um, I've forgotten the analyst part, but uh, I usually talk about them with my husband. I wake up in the morning and go, what did you dream? And he goes, I dreamt this. And I go, I dreamt this. And then we talk about it a little bit. And that's actually so much more helpful than just writing it down and it's like saying it out loud and then getting the other person to say like, but what about that part that you're ignoring? Like, why are you ignoring that part? And you're like, you know, you get fixated on that was weird. This cool thing happened. And the other person go, yeah, but you're ignoring like the rest of the dream. So what about this part? So I think, so I don't have an analyst, but at least saying it out loud, I think is really helpful. It's weirdly helpful. Um, having, it be a, about it. Di- having it be a dialogue. Yeah. A dialogue. Sit where, alone with yeah. your own thoughts. You, you're not, you probably get stuck, right? Because you don't know where you're stuck. So, you know, sitting alone with it is only so helpful. And I found once I started talking about it, it was so much easier to actually figure out what they might be saying rather than just kind of digging through them and not really getting anywhere. Um, that That's definitely a big thing. If you have somebody to talk about it with who is patient enough to listen to your stupid dreams every day, um, that's that's the way to go. Well, that's the thing is because like, is it a big dream or is it one of those stupid dreams? And is it a right. repeating motif? Is it, you know, there's oh man, yeah. I I always I always fixate on the wrong things. And the analyst just goes, Robert, let's talk about that bear attacking you and and the wolf. And I'm like, oh, I thought it was about the dragon. He goes, no. Nope. I'm like, all right, fine. <laughs> and I find that's really helpful. But I'll tell you what, like sorting that stuff out. Like I didn't actually try to find an analyst until I took a film studies class run by a Marxist professor who refused to discuss anything that didn't have to do with Freud and um, Foucault. And, uh, Derrida. <laughs> I got so sick of reading those French postmodernists. Yeah. I was like, I was taking pictures of like the text and sending it to my, my sister, Rebecca, who's incredibly well-educated. She goes, yeah, Derrida's bullshit. And I'm like, okay, all right, well now I'm learning it like for real. But one time he, I said something, I raised my hand and said, 
you know, Freud wasn't the last psychoanalyst, right? And he just goes, he, he got really pissed about that because um, I challenged him. Mm-hmm. And then he said something about like, uh, there is no individual relationship to the unconscious. Just what? as a fact is what, that's how he said it. And I, I was so, so angry. Yeah, that's a, what kind of statement is that? I, I, I think it has. So there's also a distinction between like Jung always made a point of saying that his process was empirical because he was always talking mm-hmm. about what people dreamed, what they wrote down, what was meaningful. So he was always gathering real data, but he wasn't gathering data that you can test in a lab. And I think that that's the breaking point for a lot of people. Like you can mm-hmm. hear a million stories about an out-of-body experience, but until we can test it in a lab, it's not real. And it's like, well, then this is where the phenomenology comes in. Well, then what do you, what do you tell someone who, whose life has changed radically because I like, oh, it's not real. I mean, you, you're cutting off, you're cutting Your off experience, the experience. For, yeah, exactly. You're, you're denying someone's experience for one, and you're not allowing them to explore it in a way that might be beneficial. And by dismissing it, like, I don't know enough about the cosmos to tell you if my astrological sign has something to do with my fate. Okay. I am just going to say right now that I'm never going to know that. And I also don't think that pulling a star chart is going to solve that problem for me. But What's go your for sign, it. Robert? What's my? Uh, What's your sign? <laughs> I well, I'm Aries. Duh. Me too. Duh. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yep. I saw this great meme that said that showed. Uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but it was Greta Thunberg and Kyle Rittenhouse, and it said these have the same sign. <laughs> that was the funniest <laughs> thing I've ever seen. I already love a meme that has both of those people oh, it was, in it. It was so. hilarious. But that but that's but the thing is, like, and you get um there's a there's a guy named uh Richard Tarnas. Are you familiar with him? He wrote that book that's uh all about astrology. A big deal. Um Passion of the Western Mind, I want to say. Something I don't like know. that. He's written a couple books. But I I'm think sure. he wrote the the art he wrote a book on arch- archetypal astrology. Okay. And his daughter. Becca is head of like the astrological archetype journal or something like that. And she did her thesis. And this is pretty interesting. I watched a couple of lectures that she did comparing the red book to Lord of the Rings. Oh, I've seen that pop up on my YouTube. Okay. I need to maybe watch that now because that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you should watch that one. Cause it, cause they were both. So Jung's red book experiences were happening while Tolkien was doing drawings that later became the background of the Silmarillion. They're happening wow. in like 1913, 1912. Right. Because they were both on that wave. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she compares like the, an image of Sauron, like the eye of Sauron to images of a red eye that Jung drew in the red book and talking to you makes me really want to buy the red book and, and read it, but also feeling like I'm not ready for it yet. Uh, but she also did a really cool lecture on the, the work of Hildegard von Bingen. And oh, or she, yeah. So she, but she, but she, the interesting thing about the discussion was like how she broke out of the structure of Catholic iconography with her paintings and she was an herbalist. She was a healer. She was all these witchy things. Um, you know, I think maybe a lot of modern witches don't realize how weird Christianity already is. 
I think they're just Maybe stuck with like the stuffy Protestant version or the stuffy modern version of Christianity. And they just don't know that all that stuff is, it's already there, but you really do have to like dig it up at this point. I mean, it's not out in the open. Yeah. I mean, it, I um, didn't know about any of this stuff until my late twenties, which yeah. is, you're like, how, how did I go this long without You have to look really hard. I mean, it's just, it's all that hidden little stuff you got to dig out and, um, I don't know. Should we like rescue them from their from their new agey ideas? Probably. Like, um, but I anyway, will tell you. I, I will tell you one thing that um, even one. Of, this is also. I think um, I have to give my girlfriend a lot of credit for this because she always brings me back to the charitable um, approach when with I'm dealing with someone I disagree with. So I will go on a rant about how I just can't stand something or other, and then Sana will say. Robert, have you maybe considered that this, this, and this is part of what is informing this worldview? And I just go, okay, Sana, you're right. You're right. But she's also incredibly empathetic. She's an actress. She's in theater. She works with people all the time and she always has to manage a lot of different personalities. So it's good. Our our personality profiles complement each other. Even each other out. Yeah. 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 And and that's, she's, yeah, she's actually in two of my uh, short films. I was gonna. I was gonna ask you another question there. Can't remember what it was. Anyway, there was the astrology. Oh like... yeah, so astrology, so Aries. So this means we're exactly the same, just different genders. Glad we figured. That. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, because then, because then you look at the the fact that um, the twelve tribes of Israel are all associated with different astrological signs. Um, you know, you have the, the four evangelists, you know, are the same animals that are on this, that make up the Sphinx. And you have all these like fascinating connections with esoterica and like the hermetic tradition that you, you can't ignore. Right. But it's also like, you can show how much these things have in common, but then you also have to show what they don't have in common. Mm -hmm. Like what makes them different? Like one of the things father Stephen DeYoung talks about is how Joseph Campbell fixates so much on what everything has in common that he's perfectly fine equating Luke Skywalker with Jesus Christ. Right. But guess what? Our Lord Jesus died on the cross to save humanity. And Luke didn't Mm -hmm. also Lucas, George Lucas's creation. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's, there's a line. Yeah, there's there's certainly a line there. And the other, another interesting thing, um, I forget who it was. My brother goes to a, a, a modern uh, contemporary church sometimes because a lot of his friends go to it. And uh, he's talking about like they have like fog machines, you know, and lights and music. And then I heard someone say, you mean incense and candles and chanting? And I was like, oh, how about that? They're trying to reincorporate the numinous experience of worship from divine liturgy they just don't realize they're doing it like you automatically go back to those ways of expressing things which i think Mm -hmm. that's another thing that completely blows my mind yeah so there's a weird studies uh two-part um so other than the tarot series that they do like they just did the wheel of time wheel of time or something yeah something like that uh they did the fool which is a great discussion the Empress, the Tower. Um, so I'm learning about this as I listen to them, but they did a two-part episode on Jung's essay, which is on the relation of analytical psychology to poetry. And 
they do a two-part discussion of it where they break down how Jung differentiates sentimental art from introverted art, basically, where it's like, okay, there's the art where you're going based on your gut. And then there's the art where you're doing everything in a finely detailed, constructed way. And they compare David Lynch to Stanley Kubrick. You go get a Kubrick was so incredibly detail-oriented. He's the, he's the extroverted one. Everything's got to be like particular. But then you got Lynch, who's just flying by the seat of his pants. First idea, best idea, go for it. And how they're both two phases of, of creativity, but they're both creative. And they break down what Jung was talking about, like the limits of Freud's interpretation, because Freud tried to reduce everything to a psychological reason. So he'd look at Hamlet and say, oh, well, this is about repressed incest urges and homosexuality or whatever. And Shakespeare clearly dealt with this, 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 and this. And uh, right, next, uh, next analysis. And Jung would go, you've said nothing about Hamlet. Mm-hmm. You've said nothing about Hamlet. You've, you've, you've broken everything down. In fact, this reminds me of a, a funny little anecdote in one of my film studies classes. So we were doing horror films directed by women was the class and one of the films was american psycho by mary harron have you seen american psycho yeah i didn't know it was any women involved (laughs) yes it was written it was written by two women and directed by one of them wow yeah that puts a spin on it doesn't it it does interesting okay so so we watch this film and i'm getting ready for the next class's discussion i'm like great we can talk about you know brett easton ellis's or or mary harron's perspective on capitalism on a rapacious office culture on conformity on you know there's a million different things that you could you could bring into that discussion and so we get into class and the professor plays this one scene where Christian Bale is walking down an alley to kill the black homeless man. And he pauses it right as Christian Bale has like his, he's in silhouette surrounded by all this uh, steam from like uh, subway vents. And he just freezes it. He just goes, Christian Bale is a phallus. Um, Just, hmm. just, just the silhouette. This is what he points out. And I just go, what? I'm sorry are we is this entire film just about phallic imagery for you and the rest of the discussion was about the libido phallic energy and like masculine whatever and and we got to the end of the class and I was just like well I'm not putting any energy into this class ever again because I realized at that point that this guy didn't even like movies he just liked using movies to grind a political axe or a a Freudian psychosexual acts which to me was just so incredibly limited and it made me really glad that i wasn't a film studies major i actually wanted to make movies because if i just sat around because that's what film studies is not what i realized is that the entire world of like film studies journals and all of that is entirely grinding a political axe and using a film to do it and they, they will take movies as starting points to talk about things that aren't even in the movie it's, it was it was very demoralizing. Like like I remember yeah. we watched uh, the Ring, not the Ring, Ringu, the original that the remake was based off of. Anyway, but that's based. Have you have you seen the Ring? No, it was too scary for me. It's okay. Yeah, I was I was <laughs> terrified in the theater when I saw it. Um, but in Ringu, it's basically about like a father who kills his 
daughter and throws her down a well and she comes back to haunt them through like a haunted videotape, right? So you have this very strong sins of the father motif here. You know, you have these very strong, like the abandonment of children. You have um, like how there's a bunch of different things you could talk about with the family and with raising kids and being a responsible parent and society and um, all those things. And so basically the girl coming back is she's haunting the people that allowed her to die basically. And then there's like the whole videotape element, which is a whole nother. So I'm thinking like, okay, how can I analyze this in a way that talks about, you know, human nature? And my professor said, what we have to do in film studies is look at this and step outside the film to ask questions about Japan and Japan's attitudes towards abortion. Huh. And I went, okay, so the father killed his daughter. That's about as far as I can take that metaphor. And then he said, what films allow us to do is ask important questions. It's not about the film. So you you ignore the text of the film and it all has to be about society. So what is this film telling us about society? And then there's a whole amount, whole chunk of literature you have to read that proves that all films are about society and psychosexual dynamics. And that made me miserable. It made me personally yeah. miserable because when I watch Gladiator, I don't think psychosexual. I think heroic. Let's get shit done and punish evildoers and, you know, Cain and Abel and let's be a mm-hmm. badass here. I'm actually inspired to do things when I watch heroic movies. You know what I mean? And you're and not that, inspired to do social commentary after that. No, I'm not mm-hmm. inspired to put Must be up, something wrong with you. You know, for a while, Emily, I thought that maybe there was something wrong with me. Yeah, yeah. Which is why it's been so cool to find people like Pajot and to find people like you and other people that are in the Genesis Council where it's like, I, I actually, I, I, I talked to Pajot a couple of weeks ago. I don't know. Did I tell you about that? No. Okay. So yeah. Is it a Patreon thing or like, yeah, nice. I did that once too. It was, (sighs) yeah. Okay. Tell me, tell me your thing. (laughs) Um, the, the, the thing, I mean, we talked about a lot of like, it was all over the place. It was a great, great conversation, but, uh, I brought up my film school experience and the whole like French postmodern thing and how miserable it was. And, and he just goes, I went to art school too. It's nothing new. And I went, okay. And then I thought maybe, maybe the resistance is what is making is, is strengthening my resolve to make my own art. Because by the time I got to my thesis film, I was basically saying, screw you to anyone who told me not to do what I wanted to do. And the people on my crew, like I had an amazing crew, like my art director, Bridget, came up with these amazing solutions to problems that I, I couldn't even imagine. She's a fantastic artist. And, but like the resistance is what I, th- I think it, it may have it kind of separated the wheat from the chaff of people who think they might be artists and people who actually are artists. I don't know, but that, but I'm, I'm not feeling that resistance so much anymore because I've found those kind of people. And even Pajot said in 2015, he thought he was the only one with his brother like that recently, the people on that kind of symbolic archetypal creative wavelength didn't know anyone else existed. So I mm-hmm. thought I was crazy for, for years, especially in, in, in film school. I'm like, am I, am I the only one here? So it's been really encouraging to see that um, change. And I really do think that we're, we're reaching a kind of cultural moment where that, backlash is coming yeah i think so i'm excited and like here it goes like i i'm so happy to 
see like like Arthur's group grew pretty quickly it'll probably keep growing there's probably many more people who aren't you know they don't know or they're not participating with anything but they're out there you know it's I'm in another group that something very similar is happening um and you're hearing the same thing over and over again and we all thought we were alone then you find the others you know is it is it an art group yeah, it's a split off from Paul Vanderclay's channel. It's a art group that gathers once every two weeks, although now it's like every week we get together and chat about stuff and what is everybody working on and, you know, bounce ideas back and forth because that's so helpful when you're all on the same page, you know, you're not trying to take each other's ideas apart in that way. Um, yeah, it's great. And it's just, it feels like the more people you get this, it starts rolling and I just feel like there's going to be momentum to this at some point. But yeah, like you, like Pedro said, 2015, I mean, how that was only a few years ago. So it's just getting started, I think. But I mean, I encountered the same thing I got out of school in 2016. And I think it made me go, I never want to participate with people like this. You know, they, they had the they had the what was it? Trump derangement syndrome or whatever was going on. Hardcore. Um, where well, I also was like and- is all your like one of the things I noticed. And this is what my, my political affiliation is based entirely on punk rock. It's entirely yeah. like, do not tell me what to do. Yeah. Like, I do not like being told what to do. I do mm-hmm. not like being harassed. I do not like being told what to think. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. <laughs> it is yep. entirely. And like, I'm definitely more on the, on the, I'm, I'm a liberal. I mean, like mm-hmm. I, I just, I just am. I'm also a Christian. You know, I mm-hmm. also like heroic storytelling and death metal. And like, there's a lot of different facets here. So when the whole Trump thing is happening, I'm just like, fucking blowhard. You're like, I, I never was like, oh, I, yes, go Trump. But when he got elected, I was just like, well, this will shake things up. Yep. I don't mind a little bit of chaos. Yeah. And But then it became every, every theater piece I saw, every, every like conversation that we had in like screenwriting class, everything suddenly was about politics boring and it was so that exactly because i'm sitting here i'm going like guys there's so much more like i even in experimental film class they'd be discussing like cnn headlines i'm sitting here going like can i just do my like experimental film without having to listen about politics all the time mm-hmm. and then i started seeing that all the films that were getting attention at film festivals were always socially relevant and they were like socially topical and what does this tell us about today and there was always some kind of angle that was contrived and propagated propagandistic in a way that now there's a lot of craft that has to go into that like in order to be a really good this really i'm really sounding dismissive here in order to be a really good propagandist you have to have mastery of your craft but i also find that it seemed a little too convenient that all of these films are coming out and they're all about social issues and i'm sitting here going like these aren't always going to i don't think these are going to stand the test of time like how long mm-hmm. are we going to be having this discussion how long like your your one act play about the age of trump isn't going to last it's just not going to last and and n- neither is is your you know one act play about george bush or or your propaganda film supporting whatever like this political figure is or or that and just getting much deeper down into like the the bedrock of of this kind of stuff and the fact that it's funny to bring this kind of full circle um the child is father to the man with the the child and the the, the wise old man i am finding that the reason that i care about this stuff so much is because i love king arthur and batman 
Wow. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I get it. Nothing that happened in the intervening years was enough to keep me away from wanting to be an artist. And in fact, all of the resistance in the intervening years has made me more determined and given me way more to draw on. Uh, it's another thing I talked to Peugeot about was, was Satanism. I told him about that behemoth show I went to and how I'm incorporating satanic elements into my screenplay because what could be a better bad guy than like Satan archetypally, yeah. right? So, yeah, yeah. but the thing about the, being the, the artist or the creator is that, yeah, you have, to, you have to be around some dangerous shit. You have to be around some subjects that are, that are like anytime you're listening to a satanic black metal album, you're, you're walking a line there of yep. like, <laughs> that's that energy. That energy is real. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't, and for a while, I think when I was way more materialist, I didn't take it that seriously, but now I'm like, Oh, that's, which is why stoner metal is what I've been listening to lately. Cause it's not overtly satanic. So, you know, right. that's good stuff. That's fine. <laughs> well, that, um, that really covers a lot, Emily. We Thank covered you a lot. so much. This has been really great getting to know you and, and chat about this kind of stuff. I'm really excited to see what this Job project turns into. What else are you working on? Any other projects in the pipeline? Oh, that's the big one right now. Um, I've been focusing on Exodus, just the patterns in it for a while, but, and I tried to jump into it to make some images, but I think it needs to digest a little bit more because I, I think I brought this up once in the Genesis council thing, but I just, I feel like we're in that pattern now. We're like, we're like needing to leave Egypt and we got to go, you know what I mean? Um, and so that's really resonating for me. And I'm, I'm just letting that sink in. And I, I want to do some things around that. I did Genesis. I want to go to Exodus next. So you're done with um, Genesis. I am. I'm done. I'm, I'm, I did that. I've been there. Um, next, next, next book. Um, yeah, that's where, that's where I am right now. The kids book thing is coming along. And I'm also, I'm trying to uh, talk to more people and have that be something that comes into it too you know I, I've done a few conversations with other people I'm really happy to have this conversation with you I felt like we could talk forever about about these things but uh yeah that's what I'm worried that's what I'm that's what I'm focusing on right now so nice well letting it go. keep it up because I'm a big fan of your work and I Thank think you. that what you're doing connects a lot of dots that I thought would never be connected really appreciate so that. it's really exciting to see that happen so well we should do this again sometime maybe further down the road when we've had a little more projects. Uh, But yeah, thank you once again. You can find Emily's work at mudhutillustration.com and on Instagram at mudhut underscore illustration. Until next time.